So as they said before, um, as you guys are um, here and coming in, just feel free to grab uh, one of the communion packets there. Uh, that'll be great as we get started. I'm excited to, uh, to bring to you guys this word this morning out of uh, Acts chapter 22 mostly, and then chapter 23 as well. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Empowered to Testify. Empowered to Testify. And that, as I normally do, I want to ask you guys a couple questions to get us started. Um, and so my first question is this question. What makes it difficult to be a Christian? What makes it difficult to be a Christian? When you think of the elements of the Christian faith that cause tension or stress, what do you think of? I would imagine that for most people, it's the exclusivity and the narrow-mindedness of being a follower of Christ that gives us significant angst. If you're honest with yourself, sometimes you hate having to be so exclusive and so narrow-minded as a believer. And we would much rather be able to, to tell people that, you know, everyone gets to God in the end. We all eventually, no matter what religious faith we come from, will get into the kingdom. That it doesn't matter where you come from, everyone goes to the same place ultimately when they die. That would be a much easier message for us to proclaim and a much easier message to have. But that mindset is diametrically opposed to the gospel and diametrically opposed to God. You see, we have the ability to know God and to know the way and the path to heaven through one place, and that is through the Bible. That is through Scripture. There is one standard by which all of our faith and practice must submit, and that is to Scripture. What we need today is a reminder of the beautiful exclusivity of our faith and an encouragement to do the hard work of standing firm and refusing to surrender humanity's soul. I hope that this message this morning will embolden you to share the message of Christ and, will, and you will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood up and refused to bow down to any other God but the one God. You see, those three Hebrews saw this golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and all the people around them bow down to that golden image to worship it because the king set it up to be worshiped. But they would not worship that golden image. They would not submit. Daniel 3 tells us these words. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, I love the confidence of these three Hebrews who refuse to bow even at the cost of their lives. Most people in that situation would have compromised. Most people would have just bowed the knee, but not them. They were far more loyal to God than to any earthly king. These three men are great examples to us of what it means to take a stand for the faith and what it means to share the truth with the great boldness. And so read with me again, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, 
binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. My first point this morning is this point is testify with truth. If we're going to be empowered to testify this morning, then we have to testify with truth. Let me give you a little bit of background on the Apostle Paul. Uh, Derek did such a great job last week uh, showing us uh, where Paul was at. And uh, last week, we ended by seeing that Paul was in Ephesus. And he had had a great ministry there. He was a tremendous encouragement to the believers in Ephesus. And they were greatly saddened to see him move on and to see him leave them. Paul knew that his next stop was actually going to be in Jerusalem. And so after visiting several different groups of believers, he arrived, he and his missionary team, in Jerusalem. And what he did was he immediately went into James and he sat down with James and the elders and they all glorified God as Paul talked about the ministry that he had among the Gentiles. And incredibly, the Jerusalem leaders tell Paul that thousands of Jews had become Christians. And this was massively encouraging to Paul and his team. But there was a problem. They heard that Paul had been teaching the Jews among the Gentiles not to circumcise their children and not to follow the laws of Moses. This accusation was false. Acts 16.3 tells us that Paul has Timothy, who's half Greek and half Jewish, Paul has him circumcised so that the Jews would be acceptable of him as he came into their midst. And also 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 17 through 20 says that circumcision is fine. Paul says there's nothing wrong with circumcision in and of itself. But this was the accusation that they gave Paul that he was saying, don't get circumcised. And so James and the elders asked Paul to show the Jewish Christians and the Jews in general just how devout he was. And so they asked Paul, Paul, purify yourself. Take this Nazarite vow, separate yourself, and show the Jews that you follow their customs and you're going to do things the way that they ritualistically say you should do them. And Paul totally agreed. And he was undergoing this ritual when about seven days later, some Jews from Asia, Asia Minor, uh, which is uh, modern-day Turkey, some Jews from Asia Minor saw that he was in the temple. And when they saw Paul in the temple, they seized him. You see, Paul was okay going through this purification ritual because he was doing what he described in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, when he says that he was all things to all people. And so many historians give great significance to this time period that Paul visited Jerusalem because this was around the time of Pentecost. This was a feast season for the Jews. There could have been upwards of 2 million people in the holy city, and that explains why these Asian Jews were in Jerusalem in the first place. It was thought back then that the, the Torah, the law of Moses, was given to Moses 50 days after they left from Egypt. And so this feast celebration was really a time for the Jews from all over the world to celebrate the law. And consequently, this accusation that they hurled at Paul was particularly damning. You see, they accused him of teaching against the people, against the law, and against the temple. This is in Acts 21 verse 28. They accused him of being anti-Semitic, anti-scripture, 
and anti-God. And this is a very strong condemnation that would have stirred up the majority of the Jews there. They even accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And many, many people, um, biblical scholars and things, believe that this accusation that Paul brought a Jew into the temple was totally false. You see, the Gentiles, when they came to the temple, were able to go into the outer court. And that outer court was the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go into the inner sanctuary. It would make no sense for Paul, who had just created this goodwill by going through this purification ritual, to have brought a Jew, uh, sorry, to have brought a Greek beyond the point where they could come into the temple. There was a barricade between the outer court and the inner court, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And on pillars were these signs in Greek and Latin that read these words, no man of alien race is to enter within the barricade that goes around the temple. And if anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. This inscription was actually found in uh, 1871 by this French archaeologist. And there were these signs all around the court of the Gentiles so that the Gentiles knew to go beyond that point was to go into your death. And so this was universally understood and known. This was universally honored even by the Romans. Even the Romans, though they were occupying Israel, knew that to go beyond the court of the Gentiles was to cause death for themselves. And so there's no way that Paul, after trying to create goodwill, would have violated Jewish customs by bringing the Gentile into this area. Not only would he not have done that, but had he done that, the penalty for the Gentile was death not the penalty for the Jew who brought the Gentile into that area being death. That was a false accusation in the first place to have tried to kill Paul for a Gentile coming into that area because only the Gentile should have died. And yet the Jews, when they hear this accusation that Paul was, was anti-Semitic and he was anti-scripture and he was anti-temple or anti-God, they seized him and they tried to destroy him. You see, the Jews brought Paul out of the temple and the entire city was in an uproar. The mob began to mercilessly beat Paul. The Roman Tribune, uh, which a, a tribune is just a commander over a thousand soldiers, the Roman Tribune came into the temple area to see what was going on. And he saw with, the, with his soldiers and his centurions this great commotion as they were beating Paul. And he interrupted that beating. You see, the Tribune, who was Claudius Lyas, his history tells us, he then arrested Paul and tried to figure out what was going on. The Jews shouted so many different things that the tribune decided just to lock Paul up in the barracks. And as they were trying to transport Paul from the temple into the Roman barracks, the crowd began to become extremely violent. And so they actually had to pick Paul up and raise him above the crowd so that they did not destroy him. And so just before Paul was about to be put into the barracks, he turns to the tribune and he says, can I have a word with this mob? Can I have a word with these people? And so Paul silenced the crowd with his hands. And then he began to speak in the Hebrew dialect of Aramaic. Paul began to speak to the people. And that made the people even more quiet in that moment as they heard him speaking their language. He gives his testimony before all those people in attendance, as he stood on the steps to the barracks, he looked over the entire mob of people and he began to give his testimony of how Christ had come to save him. 
And one of the first things that amazes me about this situation is that Paul uses his unjust arrest to testify to the grace of God. You see, he doesn't try to wiggle his way out of the situation. He doesn't try to explain to the Jews why he did not bring a Gentile into the temple. No, instead, just like Jesus, he entrusted himself to God and used that moment to advance the gospel. You see, Jesus was also unjustly arrested and falsely accused. Paul, in this moment, identified with his Savior, and he used that occasion to try to lead more people to repentance. Jesus, who never sought political power, was falsely accused of trying to set up an earthly kingdom. But what they didn't realize those people in his day was that as they tried to ensnare him, they were actually accomplishing the work of salvation that God has set forth before the beginning of time. You see, Jesus came to purchase the redemption of every person who would place their trust in him. He lived a sinless, perfect life and died a horrible death so that we would never have to face eternal punishment for our sins. He came so that we could reconnect to God. And he came so that he could restore the joy of fellowship between man and God, himself being the God-man. Jesus was the savior of the universe. And it was this Jesus that transformed Paul. And in this moment, he could totally identify with his savior who was also falsely accused and who was also unjustly arrested. In this moment, as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, this was in effect the message that he shared with his followers. He would just take that moment to share the good news of Christ. And this makes me reflect on our experience to ask this question, how would we react when we put into this exact same situation? What would you do if you were falsely accused and unjustly arrested? Would your first thought be to defend yourself or to defend Christ? If persecuted, would you speak up for the Savior or would you shrink back? I love the faith that we see here with Paul. What his accusers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so this is tremendous faith that Paul is exercising. And it begs the question for us, would we do the same? In that situation, as we're about to go into the barracks, will we proclaim Christ above all things? Paul gives a great defense in our text this morning. In any court of law, the first thing that you have to establish is motive, and then you could establish the guilt of the deed. And here we see Paul defends himself in two ways. First, he defends his motive, and second, he defends his deeds. He does all of this to share the gospel, not to protect himself. Every word that he shares is to defend God and not to defend his own personal livelihood. And I love how, how respectful Paul is. 
in, in that first little passage that, that Brittany read for us a moment ago. I love how he begins in his declaration, this defense of his, his, his life in the gospel. The first thing Paul says is, is fathers and brothers. He immediately tries to get their attention by trying to be as respectable as possible. The testimony that Paul is about to give is entirely God-centered. This is a great example to us of keeping Christ at the center of our testimony. Often we can get so wrapped up in our personal experiences that we leave so much of God's work in our lives out of our declaration of our testimony and out of the circumstances of our life. And yet, despite all of these things, God is the primary agent in every single person's life here in this place this morning. You see, God is the one who, who was in the background leading us to himself the entire time for every single person. And listening to Paul give his, his testimony here in Acts chapter 22 reminds me of, of my own testimony. and It reminds me of where I came from in Christ. You see, I'll never forget back in September of 2001, whenever the Lord began to, to get my attention and help me to understand who he is, he opened my eyes to his grace. You see, I had a friend who cared so much for me that he actually invited me to church despite the fact that I was entirely um, like ignorant of God and dismissive of who God was. I didn't care at all about anything spiritual or having anything to do with God. And so that didn't dissuade my friend from inviting me to this youth rally. He invited me to this, this youth rally at his church. And I'll never forget sitting in that pew and for the very first time hearing the good news of Jesus and hearing about what Jesus had done when he died on the cross to save us and to reunite us to God. I'll never forget that day and that moment. That night was November the 9th, 2001, that night was the night that I turned from my sins and I placed my faith in Jesus. That was the night that I was converted and that was the night that began my testimony for God. And you see, if you are in Christ, much like for me, God is the primary agent in your life. Be sure to magnify his goodness and magnify his worth in your life. Keep Christ at the center of your testimony. What I didn't realize was that God was going to use the, the September 11th attacks to put himself before me. People saw destruction in New York City and around the country, but for me, that was a time of introspection to try to figure out where do you go when you die and what happens on the other side of death and what do we need to be able to connect with whatever is on the other side. God used that moment, God used those circumstances and those situations to cause me to think about him and he eventually drew me to himself. This is entirely a work of God. And that's the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, you know, he, he declares that he was on his way to persecute and to kill Christians. And as he's on his way to persecute and kill Christians, Jesus knocks him off of his horse and he arrests his attention. He says that, that, that the glory of God was brighter than the noonday sun and he showed him who he was. And the same Jesus that he was persecuting was the Jesus who wanted to transform him. And so in that moment, that began for Paul, his testimony. 
And he stands before all of these Romans, the Roman soldiers, and he stands before the Jewish mob, and he declares the fact that God was the one who transformed him, and God was the one who saved him. And it's a powerful, powerful testimony that Paul gives. Let's notice a couple things about this testimony. The first thing that Paul establishes is that he is not anti-Semitic. He says that he is a Jew brought up in Jerusalem, taught by a well-respected Jewish leader to be a strict law follower who was an intense worshiper of God, just as all the people were who were attacking Paul. He says, I'm, I'm like you and that I am zealous for God. I was zealous for pursuing God's way. And he says all of these things in the language of the Jews, the language of his people. He is doing all that he can do to show them that he is not anti-Semitic. We see Paul using his background to win the people over. And we have the same opportunity as Paul did. We all have a background that connects us to other people who come from a similar place as ourselves. Whether it be our education or our ethnic group, our past and our roots should be used to bring glory to God by reaching out to those who may identify with us. That's exactly what Paul does in this moment. And now that's not to say that the only people you should reach out to are people who share a similar background as yourself. But that does mean that you should do no less than reach out to those who share a similar background as yourself. This is what God is calling all of us to. This is what he uses our backgrounds for. This is what Paul is using, his declaration of the gospel, is his roots were the same as their roots. And so we see Paul giving a strong defense against being against the people. You see, we see that he loved the people. He grew up as one of them, and he understands where they are coming from. Acts 22, verse 3. Not only does Paul say that he is not anti-Semitic, but he establishes that he is not anti-law either. He proclaims that he was trained by a very well-respected teacher of the law in a very strict manner in Acts 22, verse 3 again. He lets them know that he is not anti-scripture. He is for the law. Paul makes this even more explicit in his writings when he says this in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. Paul declares these words. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He delights in God's law. He loves God's law. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says these words, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He is not against the law. And one step further, the apostle says that he is not anti-temple. He's not anti-God. And he asserts this by showing how zealous for God he truly was in Acts 22, verses 4 and 5. He lets the mob know that he was a persecutor of the church and could completely understand why they would do the same. And I want you to, to consider the love that is evident in Paul's proclamations. 
Love for God motivates him to share the truth with his, com- with his countrymen. He could have been depressed having just endured a beating. He could have been resigned to having to be imprisoned and just discouraged because of that. But instead, it's love that motivates him to proclaim the truth to his peers. And this reminds me of, uh, of something that Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said these words. He said, truth is never stronger than when it walks with charity. Uh, to put that in, in our vernacular, the word charity would be love. And so he says, truth is never stronger than when it walks with love. Paul defends himself from all three of their accusations. He was not anti-Semitic, he was not anti-Scripture, and he was not anti-Temple or anti-God. Both his attitudes and his actions line up. His motives and his deeds prove him to be innocent. Paul defends himself, and we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17 says these words, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The Apostle Peter tells us to be ready at all times to give anyone an answer for the reason why you have the hope that you have in God. We have that example right here in the Apostle Paul as he's going through this situation. Always remember to exalt God in your testimony. If someone rejects your testimony, your story of how God has changed and transformed you, that person should be rejecting God because he is the central character of your story. He is the central character in your life. Share your testimony as often as possible. The story of what God has done for you in Jesus should always be on your lips. But not only should you testify with truth, but you should also testify with boldness. Testify with boldness. Read chapter 22, verses 19 through 25 with me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. You see, not only does Paul testify with truth, but he also testifies with boldness. And it's amazing to think that this mob listened to Paul throughout his entire reflection on his testimony. They listened to every word seemingly uh, with, with great patience, um, and they were just absorbing the things that Paul began to describe. They were listening to his description of his love for his people. They were listening to his description for his, his love of the scriptures, and they were listening to his description of his great love for God. But the crowd turned sharply on Paul at the mention of the Gentiles. You see, the prejudice and the hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles erupted at Paul's mention of his ministry to the Gentiles. That was the final straw for them and the reminder of why they were beating him in the first place. You see, they were trying to kill him because of his connection to the Gentiles. In verse 22 of chapter 22, they cried out for Paul's blood. They wanted to kill him and they shouted and they threw their clothes aside and they kicked up dust into the air because they were so incensed at Paul. And this reminds me of the stoning of Stephen. You see, you, you may remember that Stephen was giving a very similar testimony to Paul. Stephen was before the Jewish people and he was declaring the goodness of God, and he was describing how Jesus had come in the scriptures. And the people who were listening to him, they also cast aside their clothes, and they took up stones to stone Stephen. You, you may recall that Paul actually held the clothes of the people who were stoning Stephen. And well, what it seems to, to be going on right here with Paul in this moment is the exact same thing that happened to Stephen when Stephen was being stoned and persecuted for his faith. You see, these people with Paul, they also set aside their clothes so that they can really let the stones fly. That's why they set aside their clothes, because it was much easier to, to throw stones and to stone someone if they weren't encumbered by their clothing. But the problem was, these people in this situation didn't have stones. All they had was dirt. And so they threw what they had. They flung dust into the air, uh, to use the words of the ESV, and they tried to stone the apostle with whatever they had, dust included. And this, this thing that they were trying to persecute Paul for, this declaration of his ministry among the Gentiles, this was God's great ministry for Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 say these words. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And Paul also says in Romans 11, verses 13 through 14, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles in so much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow 
to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You see, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so consider the courage that is on display in this situation. Consider the, the boldness that we see in Paul in this moment. Paul stands up before all of his accusers, which were a mob of thousands of people, and with great courage, he proclaims Christ. Jonathan Edwards, who was a great Puritan uh, pastor, he said these words, true boldness for Christ transcends all. It is indifferent to the displeasure of either friends or foes. Boldness enables Christians to forsake all rather than Christ and to prefer to offend all rather than to offend him. One of the saddest aspects of our culture is the desire of our culture to be tolerant of everything except Christianity. Our faith is under constant attack in the culture. It takes courage to stand up for Jesus. It takes courage to be bold in the midst of a culture that rejects everything that we believe in and everything that we hold dear because of the testimony of God. But we have such tremendous examples of boldness. We have the example of Peter, the example of James and John. We have Moses and Samuel. We have Ruth and Naomi and Nehemiah and Jeremiah. We have Isaiah and Malachi and Hannah. We have John the Baptist and Philip and even Barnabas, just to name a few people who have incredible boldness in their declaration of their faith in God. We have so many tremendous examples of what it looks like to stand for God and to not compromise at all, not to be shaken, not to be moved. We have men and women of God who have had tremendous courage in the midst of great difficulty. Let me give you one more example in the history of the church for your edification of, of what tremendous courage looks like. Ignatius was a church father who was born in 35 AD and he died in 107 AD. He was the bishop of the church in Antioch, uh, which was in Syria at that time, what we would call modern day Turkey. And uh, you may recall that it was in Antioch that the Christians were first called Christians. That was the very first place that, that our name was derived from, was in Antioch, Acts 11. Ignatius was the bishop there in Antioch and he was brought to Rome as a prisoner of Emperor Trajan. Trajan was brutal in his treatment of Christians, whom he saw as atheists for denying the Roman pantheon of gods. The church father Ignatius, who many believe knew the apostle John personally, and whose life overlapped with many of the apostles, was bold in his proclamation to the emperor. Not just his proclamation, to the Roman people, but his proclamation to the emperor before him in his own court. He did not shrink back. He gave a powerful witness to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the king above the emperor. And Emperor Trajan made the bishop hold fire in his hands. And then he, he the emperor dipped papers in oil and he lit them on fire. And he draped those papers around Ignatius's body. 
They took hot irons and they poked his flesh. And then finally, they threw him to wild animals. And Ignatius was quoted as saying these words, let the fire, the gallows, the wild beasts, the breaking of bones, the pulling asunder of members, the bruising of my whole body, the torments of the devil and hell itself come upon me so that I may win Jesus Christ. This is tremendous boldness. And we have so many great examples of what it means to be bold in our faith. We see the apostle Paul narrowly escaping the clutches of the Jews as he makes his defense on the steps of the barracks. Then the tribune, Claudius Lysias, decides that he will flog Paul to figure out the truth of why they were attacking him. Paul lets the Romans know that he was a Roman citizen and flogging him would have meant death for them. You, you can't flog a Roman citizen. You can flog a non-citizen, but you can't flog a citizen. So as they were about to flog Paul, Paul reminded them, hey, I'm a citizen. You can't do this. And so they stopped. And so to figure out why the, the mob was attacking Paul, they said, let's just bring Paul before the Jewish leaders and let's see what they have to say to this man. And so Paul makes another defense of the gospel and proclaims that he has a clear conscience. As he was speaking to these, these Jewish leaders, uh, Paul was hit in the mouth and he reacted out of anger, uh, which as far as I can tell, out of every place in Acts, and out of every place in the rest of the New Testament, that's the only time that we see the Apostle Paul uh, explicitly sin. Um, and so when this, this, this Jewish person uh, on the orders of the high priest hit Paul in the mouth, he reacts out of anger, um, and he's uh, really uh, harsh in, in what he uh, says to, to those people. Um, and so that's, that's kind of interesting that, that that was the only time that we really see the Apostle Paul sin. Uh, but he was, he was a, a man just like us. He was, he was a person uh, who was fallible and uh, prone to, to error as well. And so he sins, and after he uh, makes this really harsh statement, he repents of that statement. Uh, he apologizes for, for what he said, and um, he shows respect to those, uh, those leaders, those Jewish high leaders. He shows respect to the high priests. He then realizes that the crowd was, was half Jewish fundamentalists and half Jewish liberals. And so he brought up something that they would disagree on which caused a sharp dissension, so much so that the Romans tried to remove Paul from the area before he was torn apart by this crowd of Jewish leaders. And so later that night, Jesus appeared to Paul and told him to be courageous. Jesus said that Paul testified to Christ in Jerusalem, and the next stop was Rome. And as I think about that, as I think about that, that very last verse, uh, so chapter 23, verse 11, I think about just like just how tremendous that is that the last thing that we see from Paul uh, before the story transitions is, is Jesus standing with Paul and declaring his words to him. And what a marvelous comfort after all that Paul endured for the Savior to come and stand beside him. We oftentimes wish ourselves that, that Jesus would do the same for us. We wish that in our discouragements and, and in our trials and in the pains that we endure, that God would come and stand beside us and give us a word to know that he's there, that he's present and that he cares. But we do have that word. 
We have that word because we have God's word right here in scripture. We have the pages of this book that we've been reading from this moment. This is God's declaration to you that he is standing beside you as well, that he does care for you, that he is the ever-present God, always near his children. You see, when, when Paul was converted by Jesus, Paul uh, was told by Jesus that that, that he was going to always be with him and always stand beside him. Jesus identifies with his people. You, you remember that when, when Jesus knocked Paul off of that horse as he was about to, to transform him on the way to Damascus, you remember that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul says, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these Christians. And Jesus identifies with his people. He says, when you attack my people, you attack me. Jesus is always in the midst of his people. He completely identifies with us. and He is unified with us in Christ. And so remember that you are never alone. You've never in your life in Christ have dealt with anything without the presence in the audience of the king. Remember those things. Jesus told Paul in verse 11 of chapter 23 that he, Paul, had previously testified in Jerusalem, but the next important stop for him was going to be Rome, was going to be the imperial city, the capital of the empire. Rome would be the final stop for Paul. And you'll hear more about that next week when Kevin concludes our study in the book of Acts. So as we bring things to a close and as the band comes up, I want to tell you that my aim this morning is to inspire you to be bold in your proclamation of God's truth. It's not easy to defend our faith. Often this will require us to be countercultural and utterly distinct from the world but it is worth it. There is nothing greater than honoring God and earning his satisfaction. 